Oh, what's up, Jolene? <laughs> Why are you saying like all heavy? What's going on? Girl, it's been a lot going on. Mm-hmm. A lot has been transpiring. Uh, it's been a roller coaster of emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's been a lot going on behind the scenes that, you know, a lot of folks don't really get to see on a consistent basis. So over there at yeah. FTC. No, FTC is fine. It's not the FTC part. It's uh, the other side of things, like that other life. Okay. (laughs) So how are you doing? Because literally, I'm just going to let you know. It's that, well, I have, you know, I have some. It's it's that kind of a day, you know, (laughs) pouring a glass. I have a glass for you in solidarity, um, but over Thank here, you. you know. Shout out to Lobos, okay. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Let's take a collective breath, y'all. We're talking about these banks today. Lord have mercy. Mm. Mm. Oh. <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> you know what? I feel like we need some gospel music. <laughs> <laughs> I need something. So, you know. What's up, everybody? I'm Mark Monroe, accompanied by my wonderful co-host, co-producer, co-creator, and all things galactic. Give it up for none other than the wonderful. It's Jalen. You seen the place to be. How y'all doing on this fine, very fine Tuesday? I have to switch it up. Oh, you huffing and puffing too, eh? Just <laughs> have to huff and, and puff about for sure, but um, you know, I definitely have to recalibrate. You know, for sure. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Indeed. All right. Well, you know, I got a lot to get up off my chest. So without further ado, y'all, this is executive education. So go ahead and cue that intro. So, uh, you know, something about that intro is very, very calming and relaxing. Mm-hmm. It gets me into a whole new mood. I'm definitely going to sip tonight because after, what is it, the 72 hours? I've, I lost count what the hours was looking like. Mm-hmm. But it, let's just say it was a roller coaster of emotion mm-hmm. and, you know, just consistently triaging from really Thursday, really mm-hmm. Thursday evening all the way till Sunday night until we got word that, you know, that there was a change in, in tone and temperament. So yeah. Um, <laughs> shout outs to the FDIC. Uh, and I guess you could say the United States government and treasury, but you know, we're going to get into all that. Um, but y'all welcome to executive education. Shout out to all of our cousins that are here from LinkedIn and who is yeah. first in the chat today. Do we know? WL. Okay. Peace and blessings. You know, I see, look at that. The good vibes already starting off. In the it. Yo, hey, I'm here for it because clearly if you had caught me on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, you caught me on a whole different type of vibe. All right. So we got to get a lot to get into, but we're definitely going to be talking about banking because here's the reason why, Jolene. 
And, you know, I don't know if people, well, I hope people have realized, you know, I've slightly like dipped back into the shadows because of the fact that a lot of the things that we've got working on here at FTC on a day in and day out basis, but then also it's like, you know, I always feel like if I don't have anything to say, but more to do, then I'm not going to talk. But I saw a lot of chatter of people talking about like, you know, this and that and, you know, clearly had no idea what was happening. You know, today I'm going to give some folks kind of like the well, not some, but y'all at home that are watching or if you're listening in your car and don't worry, it will be available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We're going to work on getting it on YouTube podcast because apparently they have that available now. But we're That's gonna- the thing. That's, I don't know. We're going to find out if it's a thing or not. And, you know, if it's not a thing, then, you know, hey, it is what it is. All right. So, and also, if you haven't noticed, I've also changed up a little bit of something as it pertains to the office. So, I did notice. That. I like you it. You know, the Batman chair is still sitting here. So, wait, you know, where is Butter, here. though? I don't see Butter. He, he's down below. He's, okay. He's playing with his toy. So, okay. All right. So, but make sure you like, comment, and subscribe. Uh, if you have questions throughout this video, go ahead and document them in the comment section or, you know, definitely the chat is very much so active. But Jolene, we're talking about banks, we're talking about risk, or we're talking about banking, we're talking about risks, and we're talking about the future. You know, because I feel like given a lot of the a lot of the things that were tied uh, into what was going on, um, you know, there was a lot. So, <laughs> shall we get into this presentation? <laughs> yeah, we should. Did we I should. miss anything? No, I think you got everything. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's cue it up. All right. So, uh, hope you guys know the type of vibe that we're on for today's presentation based upon what you see here. Um, So let's get it, shall we? Now, the first thing that we want to talk about is, you know, modern versus traditional banking, you know, because, you know, that's pretty interesting as it pertains to what we currently are seeing versus what used to be. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at the current state of banking and services, uh, that includes, so I'm going to read it for folks, uh, the current state of banking services that includes digital banking, mobile banking, and online banking, providing advantages, uh, such as convenience, accessibility, and speed. And those are really the three things that really matter, convenience, accessibility, and speed. Um, traditional banking model has evolved to meet the changing needs of customers and advancing, uh, in technology resulting in the rise of modern banking. So through traditional banking, you know, it's kind of hard to say modern versus traditional because traditional is really the fundamental of what we stand upon as we look at modern banking today and, you know, what will be for future banking uh, as we look forward towards the future. But I felt like this is very much so a, a show that we should definitely sit down and talk about in executive education because I realized after looking at like a lot of the things that were talked about on my on my timeline mm-hmm. and on top of that across social media, I started to realize you know, you would have thought that a lot of folks would have understand or understood, you know, really banking as a whole from the 2008 financial crisis. But it's kind of interesting that we always try to gain information about things when things are bad versus trying to learn things, learn about as much as we can before they go bad. So that way you're more prepared. But we had that, Mark. We did. But I think that this is something that is very much so needed, mm-hmm. a, you know, discussing banking as a whole. So and then well, I'm talking more so about the policies that were put in place for such a time as this. Oh, yes, indeed. You know what I'm saying? Indeed. Indeed. And so that way nobody tries to crucify me in the comment sections because sometimes our, our text can be a little bit small. Um, so the future of banking, um, mobile banking uh, will continue to play a major part. 
uh, in the future of, you know, pretty much banking. As customers increasingly demand the on-the-go banking services, it's kind of weird because if you normally drive past banks, you know, you rarely see people inside the actual physical branches, the brick-and-mortar versions. Mm -hmm. And essentially, a lot of folks either use it via online mobile web application or actual iOS, Android, or, you know, if you're using Tizen or whatever that is. Um, but essentially, you're starting to see that, you know, the banking structure of what we've known for so long, that in itself is changing. And a part of that is also with the help of things such as artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. which this will only get even further as, you know, AI will become more prevalent in banking with banks using chatbots and other automated systems to improve customer service and streamline operations. So you're kind of like getting a good look at that where it's like, if you notice when you make certain amounts of transactions over a certain balance, um, or if you're doing, you know, if something seems a little bit too irregular as it pertains to activities, mm -hmm. you normally get that fraudulent notice uh, where either something is frozen or your bank will send you a text message that will, you know, look to respond. Beforehand in traditional banking, you had like, you know, the account would be frozen and then you would either have to call in or you would actually have to go to the branch. So now it's like, it's just text message, just confirm, hey, was that you? It's like, yes, um, come down. But Mark, let me ask you, when's the last time you actually stepped foot in a brick and mortar branch? Come again? <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I, I, you know what? Honestly, I can't remember the last time I actually signed something on physical paper. Yeah. So, like, you know, my wife gets on me about this. Like, she she loves to, like, you know, print things out physically and have, like, the actual paper version. Mm -hmm. Me, I'm all, you know, digital. Like, I'll sign it, like, literally on my iPad. You know, that's what Apple Pencils are for. Mm -hmm. um, you know, honestly, I choose not to print anything. I just literally will do everything digital. So, yeah. I'm still a printer because certain things, you know, I'm also a tactile learner, so certain documents like I need yeah. to have the actual paper or the book the pages in my hands now see I haven't moved past that on books yet I'm kind of like in between but you know hey you know to each his own all right and then there's this other thing called blockchain uh which if we look at blockchain it will have also an impact uh on the future of banking uh with potential uses including faster and more secure payment processing, fraud prevention, and, identi and identity verification. So you're kind of like starting to see some of those things. If you look at it across the cryptocurrency landscape of things, they definitely use blockchain for verification. Even in some mobile applications, they use blockchain technology. And even in investment banking, they do the same thing. Um, what we've always known as the SWIFT, uh, for the SWIFT system, I think that the blockchain will possibly have a potential disruptive case mm. towards Swift in the later future, but I still don't think that we're quite there yet. So, I mean, but we're, you know, we're developing. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. So let me, let me go back real quick because I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, discuss this. Like, um, so if we look at the combination of things, right, it's like where we look at the technological advancements, and the other parts of that, if you really think about like where the innovation lies, it's very much customer centric focus. Mm -hmm. So for example, everything, like if you focus more so on the customer's experience, you'll find more of the disruption there versus if you look at, say, for example, the more tech the technological advances only just, you know, bring out even more or just, you know, really complement the customer centric need that ultimately gets addressed. So something to like, you know. Well, that's interesting though. Um, as far as like where the disruption would be, it's interesting that it you're saying that it would be with customer service. 
Um, and I think that's really because you can set yourself apart. Like we've been talking about customer service, you know, a couple of mm -hmm. weeks ago, we're talking, well, I think it was three weeks ago, actually, um, yep. when it came to, you know, product market fit and, you mm -hmm. know, product iteration and even using Amazon as that, as that test case or case study, you know, they focus on the customer. And, you know, when I think about just like, think about like the apps that banks have, like the better the app is, the more likely you are to use it. Like you won't even have a need unless your uncle Charles and he needs to see your face. He just said that he, said he was all up in the Bank of America because he needed to lay eyes. He needed to lay eyes on folks. <laughs> but it's, it does make a difference. Also, Mark, okay. So you know how we have the, um, the chat box bots you know and things like that we'll get to that we'll get to that we'll get to that well, no, i was just gonna say that that there are times when you really do like when i call i don't want to just be pressing buttons i want to press zero 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 and get to yeah everybody still goes to zero yeah asap yeah it's kind of interesting because we haven't gotten there yet in the services where and i think that they're ultimately getting better by allowing the ai to listen in on the conversation um, you know, it's kind of funny because where they say this call is being monitored for quality insurance purposes, mm -hmm. you know, the quality assurance purposes are more so the AI that's listening in and learning from the behavior in which that it's seeing. So it's kind of interesting because, you know, once upon a time, people thought that, oh, was somebody like really, really listening? Nope. Now it's the AI and it can actually, it's listening on multi-different facets. One, the customer service basis, like mm -hmm. was the need met, was, was, you know, was the issue addressed or was there other issues that needed to, you know, that that were at play? Um, and so it's a multitude of different things. And then using machine learning to ultimately Im improve on those outcomes. Now, so, yeah. I have a question about that. So is it is the AI taking the audio and then transcribing it and then um, doing its thing? Or is there yes. some audio component now to AI that they're using no it's 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 literally just doing all of that like mm -hmm. okay <laughs> yeah one like you know one of the companies that was pretty cool um back around the time when zoom really started to take off was using services like otter ai where it would take into consideration like you know okay transcribe everything that was being discussed but now it's gotten to the point where it's able to transcribe who are the different speakers mm -hmm. and also under using context to understand. So basic natural language processing across multiple different facets and using contextual uh, algorithms. Uh, so to figure that out. So, but let's, let's move on. Cause you know, we got a lot to jump into. Um, so let's talk about the next phase, which is the economy loves our risk menu. <laughs> and please forgive me. Like I said, um, a lot has been going on, so <laughs> hopefully, we keep the, hopefully we keep this five star review. <laughs> so let's let's talk about some of the items that are on the menu. So from the financial uh, literacy gurus, we take inflation. You know, this is what they had to say about inflation: uh, is the rate at which the general level of prices uh, for goods and services is rising. Inflation can lead to increased interest rates and reduce access to credit for borrowers. Uh, which can impact banks' revenue. So something in which that you're probably seeing in a high interest rate environment, you're probably starting to see that take place uh, alongside with inflation as the, as the Federal Reserve, the bank of all banks, literally tries to tame inflation, um, which ultimately the opposite, of course, to inflation is deflation, is the opposite, of course, where the general level of prices uh, for goods and services is falling, 
deflation can lead to a lower demand for loans and reduce uh, revenue from uh, interest income. So that's from your social media influencer. Uh, and then, of course, we have recession. Now, this comes from a sad household uh, where is a recession is a significant decline in economic activity that lasts for more than a few months during a recession. Banks may experience an increase in loan defaults and may need to increase their loan loss provisions, which can impact their profitability. Now, it's kind of funny because the reason why I say like I, I say that is because of the fact that it's a recession when you see everybody else uh, losing your job. It's a depression when you lose your job. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just kind of interesting when we think about that, because a lot of folks will not, you know, literally admit it that we're in a recession. And, you know, it's it's always crazy. Like then they'll finally admit it when we're on our way out. But, you know, there that is. And then which leads to the depression is a severe and prolonged recession that results in widespread economic hardship. During a depression, banks may face liquidity issues and may be forced to raise capital or seek government assistance, a.k.a. social media. And then our last two reviews uh, come from uh, the Federal Reserve and also from a old uh, friend, the 2008 financial crisis, which is credit risk is the risk of default on a loan or investment. Banks assess credit risk by analyzing borrowers, credit histories and financial statements to determine their ability to repay the loan. When borrowers default on loans, banks can suffer losses indeed. Um, but they can also do something about that, like AKA hedge against that risk. And then the final one is market risk is the risk of losses due to changes in market conditions, such as interest rates, exchange rates, and or stock prices. Uh, banks may hold investments such as stocks, bonds, and currencies, and changes in market conditions can impact the value of these investments. Whew. And so when we think about that, you know, economic refer, uh, risk refers to uh, like the risk is associated with changes in economic conditions such as inflation, deflation, recession uh, and depression. These risks can impact banks and their customers in a multitude of various ways. Um, so in addition to those economic risks, uh, banks also face credit risk and market risk. They face those very heavily. If you haven't been paying attention, then that's very much so what you started to see. Um, and then, of course, which leads us to the final one, which was the 2008 financial crisis was caused by a combination of factors. So it wasn't just one. It was a multitude of things because I tend to find that, you know, nothing really crashes off of just one issue. It's mm -hmm. a set of uh, it's a set of issues that ultimately like overload and pretty much, you know, everything goes boom. And that was caused by including uh, that, that was a housing bubble, one uh, high levels of debt two, and of course, financial institutions taking on excessive risks, um, which, you know, turned into regulation. And then as of 2018, some of that regulation got pulled back. But, you know, who's judging? Me. All right. So, <laughs> all right, let's let's talk about it, because, you know, this is where, you know, I was like, you know, in my this is me kind of like in my feelings where it's like you think, you know, uh, but let's ask people, you know, what are the top five? What are the top five banks in the world? Let's check the comments. Yeah. What are the top five, what are the top five banks in the world? OK, uh, yeah, we'll give them a little bit of time. You know, just to think about it, ponder, you know, go to Google, run the Google. <laughs> we got JP, Brandon. Brandon says JP. Blacksit nice, says nice, nice. Uh, Bank of Singapore. We got Goldman Sachs, Barclays, Chase, JP Morgan, um, Amex, JP Morgan. 
Bank of America, JP Morgan, Chase, Barclays, Bank of America. Someone said dot, 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 sadly. Goldman Sachs. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> Wells Fargo, Bank of America, U.S. Bank. Now people are just Okay. <laughs> so it's funny how everybody thinks that like the U.S. banks are the top banks in the world, but whew, aren't you in for a surprise? The top banks in the world, we'll, we'll, we'll skip the fifth one because honestly, you can see where I'm going with this. Um, and honestly, there, if we went to the number five, it wouldn't even be a U.S. bank in the top five. So the top banks, the top out of the top five banks in the world, four of them are from China. So <laughs> and then one of them comes from the U.S., which is uh, J.P. Morgan. Uh, so we got Industrial and Commercial uh, Bank of China, a.k.a. ICBC. Uh, which they um, pretty much carry over to, uh, $4 trillion in assets. It's, uh, of course, a state-owned bank in China and operates in over 40 countries. So you have that one. Then, of course, you have the China Construction Bank, which, I mean, if you look at, you know, between China and Construction and J.P. Morgan, you mm -hmm. can possibly see some things switch it up uh, by the end of this year. But as it currently stands, uh, China Construction Bank uh, with over $3.4 trillion in assets uh, like ICBC, also a state-owned bank in China and operates globally. Then, of course, at number three, you got J.P. Morgan, the, uh, the top largest bank in the U.S. with a balance sheet total of $3.3 trillion. And then, of course, at four, we got Agriculture Bank of China, which recently got surpassed by J.P. Morgan as the fourth largest bank in the world based on assets with over $3.2 trillion in assets. So uh, just for perspective, <laughs> just to put it out there, the banking industry is one of the largest industries in the world with many global players competing for market share in this slide. So, you know, if you think about it, like, you know, when you think about like your top banks, right, mm -hmm. you know, it really goes to show you that how much, you know, in the US, how much, it, you know, we actually control that goes around the world or how much money moves around the, like from around the world into either you into the U S or in other places. So, you know, of course, you know, we could have made that other part where we just said, you know, Hey, you know, it's, you know, probably if it, if they weren't state owned and you know, that, that list would probably change, but you know, the numbers are the numbers. All right. So let's get to traditional banks versus uh, Neo banks. Um, because this is interesting, you know, as we know, traditional banks, uh, legacy institutions with a long history, of providing banking services to customers. I mean, that's just always been like the thing. And, you know, shout out to Uncle Charles because that person went to the bank and they literally are talking to a actual <laughs> physical person. Uh, these banks typically have a large branch uh, network and offer a wide range of financial products and services. And then you also have what is called the neo banks. And mm -hmm. these are digital only banks that operate without physical branches. Uh, these banks typically offer a more streamlined and user-friendly banking experience with lower fees and higher interest rates. So it's actually kind of interesting because in a lot of the new banks and under the new banking systems in which that we see today, you know, they actually carry much more of a higher yield in, in savings and everything else. Um, and they pay it out may, way higher than your traditional banks do. And here's the thing about like neobanks also, uh, which kind of like brings it into attention. You know, when you think about neobanks also, the reason why that they're actually becoming more and more popular is because in banking, we, we're starting to realize that it's never really a one size fits all except for, you know, credit, debit, you know, expense, uh, you know, expenses, income. Um, but then outside of that, you also have this perspective of, well, what if I want something specific towards this or something specific towards this? And the other interesting part is it's very easy and very fast to set up these bank accounts. So, 
you know, when you think about like the chimes of the world or on the business side, you have the Mercuries of the world. By the way, you know, if you're, you know, we'll get into that a little bit later. <laughs> like yeah. I, said, I got a lot to get on my chest, yeah. but I wanted to make sure I get the rudiments down yeah. for everybody Take first. Time. Take your time. You know, like, for example, how banks make money. I felt like I'm missing something from this one. So we got to, you know, you know, I was going to have something there, but I guess, you know, the, the powers that be took that off the list. All right. So how do banks make money? So uh, three things in which that how they make money, which is one, of course, interest income. I think that that's the very basic for everybody here, which is banks earn interest income uh, by lending money to borrowers such as individuals or businesses and earning interest on the loan. So banks can also earn interest on their investments such as bonds or stocks. So normally the things in which that are supposed to like they, they're not going to choose like to trade futures or something like that if they're just a standard bank. They're just going to probably just go with like a treasury bond or something like mm -hmm. that and then ultimately buy stock most likely an index or you know something of that matter that gives them a highly diversified portfolio uh low risk um and then let's talk about fees and commissions because you know this used to be very heavily but if you notice a lot of banks especially neo banks have started to like wave a lot of these things they've as we gotten into the traditional banking style um, so like bank charge, uh, fees for various services, such as ATM withdrawals, wire transfers, and overdrafts, uh, banks can also earn commission by selling financial products, such as insurance and mutual funds. So, you know, once upon a time, they would get heavy commission for being able to not only just open up a checking account or something like that, but let's say that you open up a checking account and then they said, Hey, how would you like to have this CD or these mutual funds or buy insurance? <laughs> then that's also another, another revenue driver. If you think about the interest off of like, if banks were to exist, you know, back in the days of old, then honestly, you wouldn't have won a lot of folks working at those physical banks because of the fact is, is that because of the, that, that they're not able to do other things to bring in revenue, the, you know, cost of living and everything else, either you would have to raise the fees on your customers or you would have to find other uh, vehicles, uh, such as fees, commissions, and interest income, alongside with investment banking. So now this opens it up into a whole nother arena. So this is what separates, like, let's say, for example, even though that JP Morgan owns Chase, but this is what separates JP Morgan from Chase, okay. if, you, if you're catching my drift. Mm -hmm. All right. So investment banks provide advisory services to corporations and governments, helping them raise capital through debt or equity offerings. Uh, investment banks also provide trading and market making services to institutional investors. So that's a big difference. Yeah, it's big. A couple of zeros there, <laughs> it's a big difference. Very much so different. Mm -hmm. All right, so banks generate revenue through a variety of sources, including interest income fees and commissions. So, you know, just so that way you can have an understanding of like, okay, hey, well, why does a bank do such things? Or why did this bank decide to, let's say, go with, you know, purchase mortgage-backed securities or mortgage-backed bonds or buy 10-year, 30-year bonds? Because ultimately, it's like they're looking for an investment vehicle in which that, you know, hey, you got to make money, and especially in a, you know, I guess I'll get into that. But I guess in a low interest rate environment, mm -hmm. you know, cash is very much so plentiful when in a high interest rate environment hits, cash is not as plentiful. So if you notice, like, for example... When interest rates were ridiculously low, everybody and their mama was out there wanting to go out there and, and set up for a 30 year or 15 year or maybe even, a you know, some type of variable mortgage. Mm -hmm. But then when those interest rates started to 
<laughs> the game changed a little bit and people you know you started seeing a lot of people leave the kitchen because the kitchen was getting a little bit too hot and they said hey i'll go away for you in the living room all right so there's that part then on top of that you have the fed that's ultimately like just still raising rates but yet at the same token banks make money off of high interest rates but then when there's not a lot of borrowers and everything else that can kind of like have a hindrance as it pertains to the type of income and revenue that you drive in. So well, again, that's when those offers come out though, Mark. That's when you, you start. Say what? Getting, that's when those offers start coming out. You start getting more mail. You know, like here's this personal loan. Take this out. Yes, like, yes. It's, it's kind of funny because when they try to like get things going, mm-hmm. they turn they turn to those types of vehicles in order to make those things happen. Mm-hmm. You know, when in reality, it's very rare, like, but I, I guess I don't know how, what the, you know, what the success rate is, but let's, let's, let's move on. Like, cause let's talk about another thing and which is like, you know, how is it that we look at, you know, you know, companies or banks and when we look at their success or profitability. So these are the two things that I like to say are the major parts that really keep everything moving for banks. They're judged based upon net interest margin which is AKA the difference between the interest earned on a loan and investments and the interest paid on deposits and other liabilities. So this metric shows how efficiently uh, a bank is managing its assets and liabilities to generate income. So again, they got to generate income. If they can't, then that's a problem. And then of course there's return on equity. And so I, I think we talked about this in like the managerial finance part, but yeah. we can slightly hit upon it again, where it's understanding the target uh, customer through buyer personas, uh, well, wait a minute. No, that's not correct. Um, but pretty much it's just the return as it pertains to the value. I, I think we have a typo issue there, but pretty much let's, let's keep it simple for everybody as a, as an example. So if we look at return on equity, which is the ratio of net income to shareholder equity, let's take, for example, if a bank earns a hundred dollars in net income and has a thousand dollars in shareholders equity, its return on equity would be 10%. A higher return on equity indicates that a bank is generating more profit. Uh, so, you know, if you're generating more profit, that's a good thing relative to the equity invested by the shareholders. So that's a positive sign. Mm-hmm. So that would be what we would consider as pertains to the return on equity. Um, now, let's look at the net interest part, because I think that that's the part that where it's like, you know, it gets interesting. So, for example, if a bank earns $100 in interest income and pays 60 uh, bucks in interest. So as an interest expense, its net interest income would be $40. So the net interest margin would be calculated by dividing the net. uh, So dividing the net interest income by the bank's total assets. So a higher net interest margin, right? So Mm -hmm. if you notice in these both examples, the higher, the better. So a higher net interest margin uh, indicates that the bank uh, is earning more interest income relative to its assets, which is a positive sign. So, you know, those are things to definitely, again, pay attention to because it sets up the next slide, which is the impact of high interest rates on banks. Now, I've kind of broken this up into three different places where it's income, demand and funding. You know, when we think about all banks. So income is pretty much as banks can charge higher interest rates on loans and investments, this leads to higher profits and increased shareholder value. I mean, I think that that's a kind of like a give me to everybody. You know, that's not only just banks, but that's also at other companies. 
And then of course we have demand. So if, and these are effects that can, you know, these are like, you know, like things that can definitely like have impacts on banks. So decrease in loan demand. So with a high interest rates on banks, it decreases a loan demand as borrowers may less likely take uh, out loans due to higher borrowing rates. So we, we talked about that. So if it's cost more to, to borrow something that can, you know, definitely pose a problem. Um, and that leads to a decrease in revenue from the loan origination fees and decrease in loan balances. So there's that. And then, of course, we have uh, the funding issue, which an increase in the cost of funding for banks as they may need uh, to offer higher interest rates to attract deposits. This can lead to a decrease in net interest margin, like we just talked about, and a decrease in profitability. So, again, you know, when those things start to hit, like, again, it's like you have to make things attractive, even in a high interest rate environment. And if that's the case, you know, again, it takes away from the potential profit margin. So to keep it simple for everybody, like to, to put it into perspective for you. So take Apple, for example, if Apple was a bank mm -hmm. and then let's say that, you know, the cost, the, let's say that the supply, the supply chain was the interest rates. So the cost of supply went up. <laughs> so now Apple could choose to say, okay, hey, we're still going to charge the same price of what we're going to do, though the cost of things has now gone up. Now that's going to have an effect on if the cost of the cost of materials to build something and to ultimately get it out there to everybody else has gone up, but yet they still charge the same price. And that means that most likely their margins are going to come down unless they do some type of beautiful financial you know, engineering in which that they're able to keep things steady. Um, and that's why you see like a lot of companies ultimately laying off people. Um, but then there is this other part that if they raise their costs, mm -hmm. then they run the risk of having a lesser amount of folks buying their product. So if you take the same light as it pertains to banks in high interest rate environments, you can kind of put it into perspective to see exactly why those margins can ultimately be impacted. All right. So. Which leads us to, you know, this wonderful thing <laughs> called the federal funds rate. Now, uh, you know, we've been taught like everybody and their and their mother has been talking about this at nausea. So I'm not going to like literally bore everybody with this type of conversation because, you know, I mean, it's kind of like I said, it's kind of like overdone in the conversation. But, you know, pretty much what you're seeing is. As the Fed increases, as they continue to raise rates, then that's going to have an impact on the on the true federal funds rate. Now, the one thing that I couldn't talk about was like was the yield curve. So those are the two things that really have significant impacts on, say, for example, uh, banks. So federal funds rate, uh, which is the rate in which interest rates at which banks can borrow and lend overnight funds to each other. So, I mean, I think that we got that part down, like AKA, if the Federal Reserve is the bank of all banks and they tell you, hey, that this is what you can, this is the rate, <laughs> deal with it. <laughs> and so then we also have, for example, um, the yield curve. Now, when we look at things like the yield curve, it's pretty much, I don't have it up here, but if you get the chance, go pull it up, uh, look at it too. A lot of times people look at the twos and tens, I like the three month and 10 year because I believe that that's more accurate as it pertains to being able to predict recessions and other things. But pretty much it's the relationship between short term and long term interest rates. So a steep yield curve um, where long term uh, rates are much higher than short term rates can be beneficial for banks as they can borrow at lower short term rates and lend at higher long term rates. 
So AKA like things like, you know, mortgages and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Now a flat or inverted yield curve where short-term rates are higher than uh, long-term rates can be negative for banks as it can um, lead to a decrease in net interest margin. So, and if you look at what we just talked about, then that eats into your costs. Okay. So we're getting closer, y'all. I promise you, we're getting closer. Okay. Wow. All right. There it goes. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, let's get back to this future of banking thing because remember what we talked about where we talked about digital banking um where you know like i said it's becoming more popular with customers uh preferring to use online and mobile banking services and then of course open banking allows customers to share financial data with third-party providers and creates new opportunities for banks to partner with fintech startups so like for example if you look at how uh, trade of eight also like, say, for example, coincides with, let's say a trading view or how is it that you're able to move information from your brokerage into such, uh, platforms like that. That's what we would consider like, kind of like that open banking model. And we do the same, we see the same thing when people use like their mortgages or say, for example, like those other new online banks. And then of course, using AI to improve customer service, uh, AKA reduce costs and enhance uh, risk management. Now, of course, there's some other things like, for example, blockchain, like I talked about. And of course, fintech startups use technology to provide more efficient and customer-friendly financial services. And of course, there's this thing that is like the looming category of crypto. Shout outs to Signature Bank and Silvergate. But Are you, you know, just taking a sip? <laughs> I did. I had to take a sip on that one. I'm going to call them petty sips. That's what I'm doing right now. Petty sips. Right. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. So, you know, what does that AI look like? Now, we talked about it a little bit earlier. Well, you know, here's actually what it looks like. And Bank of America uh, created uh, what they call Erica. In my world, there's only one Erica, and that's the only <laughs> one that matters. But, you know, this Erica says, see what I can do for you. And, you know, in 2020, these are all the, this is the patent uh, breakdown by Bank of America. So, as you see, 19% of this was AI and machine learning, which if you start to notice, like they're starting to decrease less and less and less of some of the traditional stuff, like for example, ATMs. Um, but if you look at like, you know, look at the areas in which they have the highest uh, percentages, programming technology, rewards and rewards and loyalty, security and privacy, uh, payment technologies, uh, online mobile banking, fraud detection, and of course, uh, like I said, uh, AI and ML. The things that you see, the, the lesser part, and of course, some of the things are just coming into, into play. And I'm probably sure that once upon a time, they were very much so heavily uh, utilized. So where the percentages fluctuate over time, given the times. So remember when everybody thought that the most greatest marvel was like check processing, where you could take a, sh a snapshot of your check and literally deposit it via your phone yeah. without having to go to the bank? Yep. It was a simple world was, <laughs> the world was The world was doomed ever since then. <laughs> um, so there's that. Um, so let's, let's talk about it. Right. Cause you know, risk, right. That can change the entire balance of everything. Mm -hmm. It literally can change the entire, the entire, like, you know, shape of, you know, well, like this, the shape of water, which means that it can be all the difference between your bank being able to stand afloat in tough times or your bank going underwater. Um, so something for perspective. So what are some of those risks in banking? Um, so there's there's a few of those risks, but these are the three that, you know, are really hitting hard and that are really definitely within the conversation today. 
So credit risk, number one, uh, the risk of loss from a borrower's failure to repay a loan or meet other uh, contractual obligations. Banks manage credit risk by underwriting loans carefully, monitoring borrowers' uh, credit, wor uh, credit worthiness and diversifying their loan portfolios. So, I mean, I think that, I feel like that's, you know, kind of like basic and it's been around for quite some time. But then there's also things like market risk, the risk of loss from changes in market conditions, such as interest rates or exchange rates. Hmm. Bonds manage market risk <laughs> uh, by <laughs> or banks manage market risk uh, by using financial instruments uh, such as derivatives to hedge against potential losses. Very, very interesting. <laughs> And then there's this thing called liquidity risk, the risk of loss from a bank's inability to meet its obligations when they come due. Banks manage liquidity risk by maintaining sufficient levels of liquid assets, such as cash and marketable securities. Now, of course, every bank doesn't just sit there and carry like billions of dollars in its mm -hmm. vault every day. That just right. doesn't happen. Like, let's say if you wanted to if you wanted to go out and pull half a million dollars from the bank, you know, you might be able to, depending on, you know, if it's a big bank or a regional bank. If it's a small mm -hmm. regional bank, then your chances are no. You'll have to come back later on in the day. Um, so <laughs> for perspective. Now, of course, Where you, you know, the banking industry is exposed to a range of risk. Uh, so like the ones that I just mentioned, but then there's also things like operational uh, risk as well. Um, so, and then also cybersecurity risk. So cybersecurity risk for anybody that would want to know is the risk of loss from cyber threats. And we've heard about this where hacking data breaches and ransomware attacks have significantly been plaguing throughout. And then there's this other thing called operational risks. And this is very, like, these things are like hopping, like, you know, if you notice the first three that I talked about, they can be brought on due to economics or whatever the changes in time. Um, whatever it may be. The other two are pretty much like, for example, cybersecurity, you could easily resolve that because you can spend the money to ultimately, you know, be up on your cybersecurity. And then of course, there's this other thing called operational risk. Now, this is not just like, these things aren't just like held to just, all these things aren't just held to banks, but you know, since we're speaking in the context of banks tonight, then yes, this does apply to banks. Operational risk, which is the risk of loss from internal or external events, such as fraud, system failure, or legal and regulatory compliance issues. So banks manage operational risk by implementing effective internal controls and hence the reason why compliance. Like for example, if you sign a contract with a bank, then you don't go out there and parade that. Or if you sign, say for example, a, you know, if, if you're doing, let's say a, a M&A deal, right? If you're doing a merger and acquisition deal, and let's say that, you know, let's say Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs are all tied to it, right? Well, you're not going to like literally go out there and tell the whole world or tell the opposite side or tell your competitors like, hey, this is the, you know, merger and acquisition deal that we've got brewing. You're not going to do that because it would literally go up against the operational side as it pertains to compliance. And that's the reason why they keep those types of things under control. So for perspective. Now, of course, a lot of these things that I'm just talking about to give everybody the rudimentary education uh, for this piece, which leads to who cares about you, <laughs> right? You know, good question. Like, that's a, that's a very legit question. Like who cares about you? You know, well, I'll tell you who cares about you. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Look at him. He looks so caring. <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. So 
All right, so I call this the Raven effect, all right? So it really breaks it down into three different things. So your money, borrowing, and just life. So when we think about it, uh, your money is the value of investments such as stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. When market conditions change, the value of these investments can fluctuate, leading to gains or losses for investors. I mean, I think that we all know this. Like, you know, if you're invested into the market, then you understand this. You understand that risk. Um, then there's also the borrowing uh, in which that it can be affected. Like, for example, it, the cost of borrowing money, such as the interest rates on mortgages, auto loans and credit cards. When market conditions change, interest rates uh, can rise or fall, uh, affecting the cost of borrowing money. So, I mean, another one. And then there's just life, you know, where it's the overall economy, as, you know, as changes in the market conditions can impact economic growth, inflation and unemployment. So, when we think about market risks, you know, it can have a significant impact on the average person from the value of their investments to the cost of borrowing money. Um, so just something to just keep in mind as, you know, you think about like what's happening on the infrastructure side for that bank. And then it leads me to pretty much as we get close to the final side, which is also like literally, <laughs> Lord, you know, I got to. Wait, is it time? <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's time. It's yeah, time. It's, yeah. Well, I'm going it's, it's time. So, you know, on that note, it's time for me to break out Lucille. <laughs> because I cannot believe you, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, there's been a lot of chatter, like I said. And I literally sat back and I was quiet, you know, and I just, you know, wanted to see what everybody else said. And it was like, you know, kind of like the stories changing over and over and over and you know, Lucille didn't quite like that, you know, and so, you know, <laughs> you know, Lucille, I got this. I got this tonight. Oh I got this. Gosh. So let's get back to it, shall we? And I really did not want to talk about this. I, I really didn't. But, you know, since we're here and since we're having this conversation, let's go ahead and do it. So what is a bank run? A bank run is a situation where a large number of customers withdraw their deposits from a bank uh at the same time due to concerns about the the, the bank solvency uh and we're going to get a little bit into that but you know that's pretty much it so like for example if you ever saw the simpsons 1994 then that's ultimately you know that episode where bart simpson walked around and acted as if he was talking and literally he caused a firestorm of everybody inside the bank and then ultimately making everybody want to literally withdraw their money out of the bank, which was you know, quite asinine, but you know, Hey, there it is. Um, and I was getting tons of, uh, I was getting tons and tons and tons of like emails. Like imagine waking up and you have like 99 plus text messages, um, you know, hundreds of emails, tons of missed phone calls and voicemails, which honestly, I didn't want to check any of that. Um, but, you know, it literally had a massive impact, you know, because of the fact that, you know, there was a lot that was built around, like, you know, the fear behind it. Now, of course, you know, did Silicon Valley Bank do a terrible job as it pertains to getting the message out and letting them know that they're going to have to raise capital? They did it. They did a terrible job. I mean, but when mm -hmm. we think about it, 2.25 or a billion, so 2.25 or two and a quarter billion dollars in a fundraise in a publicly traded market when I think their book value is what, $74 billion dollars. And when you think about the type of capital that runs through, it's honestly a drop in the bucket. It was just the fact of the messaging and also due to the fact of what was going on at the time. And honestly, I strongly believe that there was some, you know, folks within, you know, my arena of venture capital that were also wanting to be short sellers and make some extra bucks here and there. Mm -hmm. Because if you really think about like most banks, most traditional banks, 
you know, it's about, what is it not, you know, the average bank and let's just take it from the regional bank side, you know, but if you look at most regional banks, if there was a bank run that took place on any regional bank of about nine to roughly, what is it? 11% of the overall total of deposits inside of a bank, then yeah, of course, that's going to cause shockwaves across any bank and that can take any bank under. Um, or ultimately allow for federal regulators to step in and say, you know what, there's a problem here. Um, And so there's that part. And then on top of that, I think that it was also due to the fact that didn't help the situation was also, you know, what took place with, you know, Silvergate, which, you know, there's quite a few banks that were tied up in cryptocurrency, which, I mean, having 20% cryptocurrency tied to your books like Signature Bank, and then on top of that, you know, what is it, you know, a significant amount of what is in your bank that is un, like that is not really insured, mm-hmm. you know, that can cause a major amount of issues. And then it really like breaks confidence, which leads into why is it that I'm literally sitting here today in front of y'all <laughs> and having this because here are the symptoms of what we talk about as it pertains to bank runs. So it's one, a loss of confidence in the bank, which AKA the cost means I'm leaving. Uh, rumors about the bank. We out. <laughs> That's exactly what you saw. Bank insolvency or fraud. Cue Rihanna. Like, immediately cue Rihanna. And not the good song. This is the other one where she's walking around like, look, look, you don't have my money. We're going we gonna to wreck shop. And then the other one, which is economic crisis that shanks, that, that sh- shanks, uh, that shakes banks. <laughs> No pun intended. Uh, that's pretty much a well, you know, <laughs> you know. Um, and so, you know, why is it that I say this? And, you know, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of an insider peek as it pertains to, you know, what has really transpired on my side. So I talked about, you know, what is it that I woke up to, you know, and pretty much having a lot of those conversations with startups that, you know, myself that I've been invested into and that they were tied to Silicon Valley Bank, um, where that's where their funds were being held. Um, and so, you know, For me, it was like, you know, the biggest issue was more so because of the fact that this transpired on a Thursday and Friday so fast, so quickly. And, you know, for anybody that knows, you know, companies Monday is the processing period for payroll and for many other bills. And when you don't have those types of things, especially for tech companies, you know, when, you know, let's say that you're managing data, you know, when your cloud services, you know, they don't they don't wait. They just literally just pull capital from the account and they got to have an account to pull it from or a card to pull it from. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on top of that, payroll processing, payroll processing has to go out Monday in order to pay people on Thursday and Friday. And so, you know, that caused a lot of fear uh, across the entire board. And so what does that look like, you know, from my side of the, uh, from my side of the desk and, you know, uncle Charles, you are completely correct. You're going to need a bigger glass. That is such a fact (laughs) because, you know, if you look at like the amount of loans and how is it that we had to like literally, you know, prepare to bring funds over to startups, you had funds that were literally moving money over to law firms and setting up loan contracts just so that way it's like the money would be paid out through the law firm. You know, these are things in which that, you know, I've always and will forever say startups are literally the lifeblood of the economy. You know, yeah, you have your major publicly traded companies that do a great deal, but it's really the startups that, you know, the next wave of ideas, the next generation and everything else. You take those things out, then that's what all that stands between you being competitive to other countries. You know, the United States prides itself on that type of facet. And so, again, to go through that type of ordeal 
you know, the people that were around me within that nucleus know that, you know, again, you know, that was a very stressful last week was extremely stressful going even into the weekend was extremely stressful. Some of the startups that I know still haven't like, you know, fully like had their lights turned on yet as it pertains to their accounts. And so, you know, those are things in which that we look at and say, all right, well, either you are going to make a decision of whether or not the company has to, they're going to probably end up and have to close mm-hmm. or come up with some type of creative way or two, um, you're going to have to support them. And, you know, honestly, that's, that's the major case there. You know, did Silicon Valley Bank really do anything outside of the extraordinary outside of, you know, you know, literally getting tied up in mortgage backed securities and, you know, really being caught over leverage in the sense of in the in the midst of a bank run. I don't think so, because honestly, I think that they do the same thing that all traditional banks do. Now, are there some things that's that they could have done that were different? Yes. Um, one of the things that we looked at for Silicon Valley Bank was the fact that they don't they didn't have the same type of stress tests as many of the other banks do. You know, their business model is a little bit also very much so different than your normal typical bank because of the fact of their ties to venture capital and the type of deals that they do. Now, if this was something that was wide array across all boards, then honestly, venture ca- the, the venture capital community wouldn't really significantly utilize Silicon Valley Bank. It would just be a smaller bank that only sits in San Fr- like Silicon Valley, California, right. and not have any type of you know international exposure, like for example, China and all the, you know, you also have some Fortune 500 companies like Etsy and I think Roku. So again, it's like there's a reason for a Silicon Valley bank existing. And I think the thing is what people need to understand. So when we talk about financial crisis, like so, which means that our modern banks safe, um, you have to read the fine print. You know, if I have to like, you know, as we get to the very close to the end, you know, you have to read the fine print and which leads us to this next slide. Deposit insurance established 1933, AKA also known as the FDIC. And when we think about deposit insurance, it provides a guarantee to depositors that their deposits will be reimbursed up to a certain amount, usually a few hundred thousand dollars, AKA 250,000 or quarter of a million dollars. Um, And then deposit insurance helps to prevent uh, bank runs by giving depositors confidence that their money is safe, even if a bank fails. And, you know, deposit insurance is funded by premiums paid by banks and is typically administered by a government agency. Um, now, if we want to look at the most, like one that really sticks out uh, as it pertains to a bank run that really had really rocked the market that nobody really talks about is Northern Rock. Uh, no, that's the one that really like kind of like sits out in my hand in my head. Back in 2007, there was a bank run leading to the first bank in the UK in the UK uh, in 150 years. That was the bank run. And that literally obliterated Northern Rock. Um, now, of course, the reasons behind it is a loss, you know, loss of confidence. And so here's the other part. You know, you know, there was also, like I said earlier in the in the show where I mentioned there was also a rollback. I think it was back in May of 2018 where we rolled back some of those government regulations, which, you know, peeled the curtain for investments or for for banks to make such investments that may carry risk or may also add an extra leverage. So there was that part. Um, But again, I think that honestly, what we could probably take from this is is that, you know, I think that the FDIC, uh, Mm -hmm. so pretty much federal deposit of insurance. uh, So I think that what's going to have to take place is that they're going to have to raise the level from 250 to probably about a million. Because when you look at today's startups, the average and this is where this is where I'm going to give each and every single one of you back at home 
a lesson. And if you're a startup, you understand what I'm about to talk about. If you're not a startup, if you're ever thinking about having a startup, if you ever were thinking about investing into a startup, you know, this is very much so something that we talk about very heavily. And I'll come on screen, just, you know, we can remove the slide. So we talk about this thing called burn rate a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, what's your burn rate? And your burn rate is pretty much how much cash are you burning through on a monthly basis in order to meet your key performance indicators or to get from A to Z um, or from goal A to B, whatever, however it is that you play the alphabet. And so when we look at it, like there's companies in which that their burn rate went maybe a few thousand dollars. So maybe five to roughly $25,000 a month. Then there are other companies where their burn rate is probably at quarter of a million dollars, if not, you know, higher than that. You know, when you think about the amount of talent that they brought on uh, and then on top of that, where they're trying to like, how aggressive are they trying to meet specific goals? You have to think about like companies that raise significant amounts of funding in their early stage funding. So let's take a company that raised $25 million. Valuation doesn't matter, but let's say that they raised $25 million as their seed round. Well, you know, normally you're looking at a burn rate over a period of time of roughly, what is it, 12 months all the way up to, in some cases, 20 months. So if you think about $25 million being burned over 12 to 20 months, that lets you know exactly how high the burn rate is, which can exceed uh, potentially the FDIC, which, in, which is insurance, which doesn't really quite give confidence. Now, there are other banks that give you a million dollars in insurance. Um, which I try to steer a lot of startups to. And I think that that also kind of like spooked a lot of, you know, founders as well as companies. Um, so when we think about those things, like, you know, you got to take it into perspective um, when you talk about like, okay, hey, who's drawing money? A company that's drawing, you know, on a, doing a draw of $30,000 a month, you know, as it pertains to their burn rate, they're not going to really care. You know, to a company that's drawing anywhere from 250 or more, you know, they're definitely going to care because if you're only insured up to $250,000 and your burn rate is $250,000 a month, you know, that's a major issue. So, I mean, honestly, Mark, you know, you, you mentioned the rollbacks in 2018 and nope. given that the um, startups are the mm -hmm. lifeblood, mm -hmm. we like when we talk about the future of banking, yep. we most certainly need, I'm like a big fan of regulation, but in a tech environment or just like in a, like when I think about like the future, it has to be measured regulation. Like it can't just be regulation for the sake of over-regulating, especially when you have dinosaurs right. in Congress that are, they're not getting. That don't even understand how Facebook works. Right. Like the speed of innovation. That's a whole nother topic about the dinosaurs in Congress, but the measure. By the way, not trying to do any ageism. I'm just saying that they didn't understand how Facebook works. Well, I said what I said. So um, also, <laughs> also, you know, um, we have to we have to not only do we have to think about like what type of regulation will be needed for the future, because we can't predict everything. But the basic stuff, like if you're if you're a bank that's operating like a large bank, you mm -hmm. need regulation. Other this all could have been prevented. But for, you know, a signature by, you know, who like this could have been prevented. And it wasn't yep. It's like a matter of greed. And so when we look at what these banks need, especially to support our economy, we can't like we shouldn't be going into 2025, you know, 2030 and beyond with these types of issues. It doesn't make sense, given 
like our position in like the global economic sphere, like we should at the bare minimum have regulation that will include like, you know, stress tests that will include making sure that you're not like banks are not operating, um, like being so risk adventurous, like you're a yep. bank, like calm down. Okay. Like I get you want to make money, but calm down. They, well, they not only do they want to make money, but they also want to survive in this world. Like you have to yeah. think about like all the things in which that like, you know, traditional banks are competing up against. And then on top of that, modern bank, modern banking is causing massive amounts of disruption. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like look at, you know, for example, you know, if you take, let's say a Chase versus or, or a Silicon Valley bank versus, let's say, a Mercury, you know, both of them focus on providing bank accounts to startups. But, you know, if you look at it, you know, they have to do those things because of the fact that look at their competition. Like, you know, a lot of banks still charge you to send wire transfers, whereas Mercury does not. Yeah. You know, that's actually like, you know, a lot of those fees are being waived off. And on top of that, they're giving you high interest as it pertains to savings within your business banking account. So, I mean, there's a lot of things in which that they're trying to do to stay ahead so that way they can still be competitive within the landscape. I do agree that there needs to be regulation. Um, regulation. I, I think it needs to be, yeah, exactly. It needs to be measured regulation and understanding within the full context of what the competitive landscape looks like and understand if the competitive landscape itself is shifting. Mm-hmm. Because I think that a lot of folks aren't really understanding that like you're in the midst of seeing a lot of things shifting. like. You know, how is it possible like that you see like how are all these major, you know, mega cap tech companies so dominant? Has anybody ever asked that question how they got so dominant? The reason why they got so dominant was because of the fact that whenever they saw a major competitor on the horizon, they acquired <laughs> they acquired the, the, the company. They acquired the talent, but they also acquired the competition. You know, of course, everybody knows the major story about Facebook, but you know, do they know the other stories about like the acquisitions that Amazon made? Do they know the acquisitions that Apple made? Do they know the acquisitions that Google made? I mean, Google like literally like disguised all their acquisitions underneath the the guise of Google Ventures in the sense that we'll invest in you. And then once when your company looks to dissolve, we'll still keep the tech and essentially like consider it, you know, hey, a wash, you know, and like thinking about like the type of things in which that they were able to do now, were they, were they able to actually monetize a true startup? Absolutely not. But, you know, hey. It is what it is. That's a whole nother other. But it's just the fact is, is like that these things are are transpiring within the space because of the fact that the competition itself is, I mean, I mean, it's very stiff. It's a very stiff competitive landscape at any point. Like, look at GPT-4 today. GPT-4 just released. You can literally use use text, like literally use a a X amount of text. Mm -hmm. And then that text will literally just create an entire website. That's wild. I mean, I mean, if you're like, just imagine all those, just imagine all those web developers that were on Fiverr and Upwork, you Mm -hmm. know, they're in trouble. Imagine all those folks that are, that work in sales departments, you're in trouble. Like if you haven't figured out, like, you know, like the fact that like things are starting, like we're like in the midst of what's happening. Yeah. Everybody is getting under the allure of things. Mm -hmm. And but yet they're not looking at like, okay, hey, what's happening beneath the surface and what's being created? Now, of course, it's going to create more jobs and hopefully the folks who want to be competitive, you know, stay on top of those things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, bringing it back to banks, you know, again, they have to consist- consistently keep trying to push the envelope in order to stay modernized. You know, that's that's the real challenge for a lot of these banks today. Like, th- that's really the case. And I think that, again, federal government just has to move up and saying, okay, hey. 
you know, does that bring up price premiums? Yeah, that's fine. Make the bank, like push the price onto the bank in order for them to literally pay for the higher premium. I got an email from Mercury saying that, hey, you have nothing to worry about. Our premiums are, we pay high premiums, but yet at the same token, your accounts are insured up to a million dollars. And we're actually thinking about increasing it to $3 million as it pertains to insurance. Like, see, that's what I'm talking about. And that's something that startups pay attention to. Mm -hmm. That's a major competitive landscape because if by chance a bank like goes, uh, unless if by chance that there's a bank run, hey, at least, uh, at least I'm covered. You know, now if you're running like Apple and you got like, uh, you know, over, you know, a million dollars in burn rate, then, you know, hey, God bless. (laughs) (laughs) But Mark, that goes back to what you were saying um, earlier about like where the disruptions and innovation will be. It will be on the customer service side of things, like the fact that you got that nice letter, which AI probably wrote to you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's possible. It's very possible. Yeah, it's like, hey, Mark, like those are always like the giveaway. It's like, you know, you don't even call me Mr. Monroe. Right. But, you know, that's fine. As long as you as long as you don't call me king, we're good. Oh, Lord. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, all in all, like if you if you don't take anything else, so like, you know, what's the takeaway tonight? You know, right. Because, you know, I always want to make sure that I leave you, you know, with some type of, you know, knowledge base or something for you to go look at. And in this case, I you know, I, I really want you to just sit back and ponder. You know, especially now that we're in 2023, you know, consider the information sources and which that you're gathering. Like, that's the biggest thing. You know, it's one thing to, you know, and and mind you, I'm just a guy that where it's just, you know, hey, you're tuning into the show, listening into my opinion. What's my where does my opinion draw from my opinion as it pertains to me talking to you about the actual things that are transpiring within the space are talking about that because of the fact that the millions of dollars that have literally had to be committed towards startups that, you know, yours truly has invested into and making sure that they stay intact and that they are able to stay afloat. And, you know, I can give you insights there. You know, that's where I draw my knowledge base from. I understand the things that are transpiring within the venture capital community because of the fact that one, I am there. And then two, you know, there's things in which that, you know, I talk to other venture capitalists within the space and we deal with some of the same things. And some things are also very much so different, which it also gives me a more well-rounded scope of things. But, you know, a lot of times it's like, you know, the information in which that people are gathering, you know, people thought that, okay, hey, that they were just like, you know, laundering money and all this other stuff. I mean, that's one of the, believe it or not, Silicon Valley Bank is one of the most respected banks within the tech space. And it's there for a reason. I mean, if you think about it, people who get SBB bank accounts, it's a level of prestige. And I think that, yeah, is the reputation hit? Yeah. But, you know, you just don't throw away 40 years like that in a matter of days just because of the fact that Peter Thiel wrote something or that Peter Thiel and his buddies got into a telegram and literally told everybody like, okay, hey, well, you know, I want these companies to ultimately, you know, liquidate or that you guys should liquidate your accounts. You know, this this bank has been around for a minute. Now, will it change? Will it have to change its DNA as it pertains to how it does business and what they look like? Yeah. But I think that that's also going to set precedent for the rest of the other regional banks that are not the major, you know, banks that we all know, like the Bank of America's, the JP Morgan's, the Goldman Sachs, all those folks, you know, the folks without the investment banking arms, the folks that literally just do business and make sure that, you know, the question is, you know, why don't we see a lot of those investments? Like, imagine what we have needed a Silicon Valley Bank if, you know, the major like banks like, you know, Silicon Valley Bank or like that Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, you know, Morgan Stanley, and many of those other major Bank of America, 
if they were literally loaning, you know, capital to venture capital and for them to like literally start a fund. It's not to say that they're not, but it's like at the level and at the uh, place of scale in which that, you know, Silicon Valley Bank did. I don't think so. And it, and it's like, I think that moving forward, though, you're going to see definitely that competition step into this space. You know, you know, another thing that what you're going to see is also a shift as it pertains to the liquidity slightly drying up for a short period of time as things, as, as a lot of these institutions get their houses in order. But I mean, that's it. <laughs> yes. So y'all, thank you so much. You know, I had to get this off of my chest. I hope that, you know, I kept it pretty much subdued uh, to the parents. I hope, I hope that I definitely still, you know, to the parents out there that definitely have your children watching. Hopefully I did you proud and making sure that I didn't act a fool, but hopefully that you guys got the knowledge. Um, until next time, uh, thank you for watching. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe because we definitely want to hear what you think. Um, and I'm Mark Monroe. Jillian GC in the place to be. Good night, y'all. And this has been Executive Education. See y'all. Peace.